Welcome to Church 213. We pray that the message today is a clear picture of who Christ wants to be in your life. We trust God for a miracle in the next few minutes. Thanks for listening. This is where we're headed. This is where we're headed, right here. So we're going to jump right into our series. We are week six into I Spy. I spy with my little eye. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're a guest with us, possibly you're thinking this. Oh, man, I've, I've missed the first five weeks. I'm going to check out. Look, don't check out, okay? Because just like Six Flags, you might, you, you might have an opportunity to ride um, a couple of roller coasters. But it's always best when you can catch them all, right? So I intentionally designed sermon series so each message is a standalone. But when you put them all together, you kind of go somewhere. So if you haven't missed the thing. So hopefully you picked up a sermon guide when you came in. That just kind of uh, help us as we work through the text this morning as we talk about I spy with my little eye. We've been digging into the nature of God and why that matters. I'm not sure if you realize it, but that does matter. Right? Come on, let me see your smiling faces. We're here. Welcome, little, welcome, little Richie. Is he sleeping back there? Okay, well, I'll probably wake him up. Forgive me, all right? Welcome, little Richie Torres. Yeah, beautiful young son God has given you. God is faithful. We have so much to be thankful for. Thank you guys for being here. I spy with my little eye. J.I. Packer says this, disregard the study of God. You sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and you can lose your soul. Man, I hope nobody gets up in the morning with those goals. It's important that we know who our daddy is. What we're made for, question, what are we made for? This is the answer, to know God. What aims should we set for ourselves in life? The same answer, to know God. I'm going to start off with this. It's the same thing, the line that I've started with for the last five weeks is this. The best prediction of a person's future is what their heart conceives God to be like. That's right there on the top of your notes. The best prediction of a person's future is what their heart conceives God to be like. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to jump right in. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Jeremiah 9, 23. It's kind of right in there. I'm on page 689, if that'll help. So I'll give you some time to flip there. Don't be afraid to go to the table of contents and say, what page is Jeremiah on? All right, I want you to get there. Bible drill, Jeremiah chapter 9, starting in 23. Some of you are saying, I'm just going to forget finding my own Bible because they put it on the screen. That is true, but I still want you to kind of work there, okay? Jeremiah 9, 23 says this. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this. That he understands and he knows me. Amen. That I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. And may God have power on his word this morning. You guys can be seated. These are powerful words from the prophet Jeremiah talking about the words of the Lord. It's for this reason right here that the question for me and my family, the question for you and your family, the question for this church family always should be, are we growing in our knowledge of God? The question is, how do you know if you're growing? Well, you're changing. Very simple. You're changing. If you're with me, say, I am. You're changing. You, you're noticing changes in your appetite for the things of God. 
you're changing because you're seeing changes in how sensitive you are to his voice. You're seeing changes in your compassion. Listen, church, in your compassion for the other people that God puts in your life. How do you know if you're growing? You're changing, right? How do you know if you're growing? You're changing. Thank you. You're, you're walking slower in the shoes of another person. How do you know if you're growing, church? You're changing. And if you're not seeing changes, chances are you ain't growing. You're not growing. And if you're not growing, one of these two things are likely to be happening. Number one, you're, you're not connected to the life source at all. You're lost. You're spiritually dead. You have no relationship with your father. Or your growth in Christ is so stunted because there's, there's something holding you back. And I'm here to tell you this morning, expect the vine dresser to start pruning you, chiseling on you, putting you under heat in order to get your fruit going again. Because how do you know you're, you're growing? You're changing. And God loves to change us for his good purposes. The question is, what does this look like, Pastor? I mean, yeah, that sounds good, but, but what does it look like to actually walk with God? That's a great question. So in your notes, I just briefly give you three simple things but have monumental impact. How do you know if you're growing? How do you know that you're walking with God? Well, the first thing is this, listening. Listening through his word and allowing the Holy Spirit to help you apply it to yourself. Listening through it. The second thing is this. Acknowledge his nature, which is what this series is all about. Acknowledge his nature and do what he commands. The third thing is, is worship him, which is what we've had an opportunity to do every single week. Right here in this room. To praise and worship him. What is worship? It's where revelation meets response. So to worship him for calling you into a relationship. So some, really to sum it up, to know God, you must, you must um, interact personally by following the comprehensive rule of the king. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Follow the law. The comprehensive rule of the king. So that little one, two, three kind of spells law. You guys get that. To trust and obey, it brings a personal connection. You know, to know something personally, it takes more than just knowing something exists. Y'all hang with me. To know something. To, to really know something is to know how, um, is to know how something will react and behave you know it's why we say things like I know my car I know my kids they would never you know just what you said to their teacher when they call you I know my kids like yeah I do too <laughs> you know it's why you 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 know I, I know my boat it is not acting right I know my my spouse I know my you know that's where you get this connection because you know how it behaves under specific circumstances circumstances for example my neighbor has this massive dog it's a great Pyrenees it looks like a polar bear it sounds like a lion but the the thing that goes on is the reason that I'm cautious around that dog is I don't know him it's why I don't make any sudden movements when he's on the leash next door because he I have seen him pull their daughter down the driveway, okay? I make very gentle movements because that dog is a stranger to me. I don't know him, which is why I'm over there. I'm cautious, and I say, does he bite? And they say no, and I'm like, does he know that? You know, I don't care what you know. I want to know what he knows. Does he know he doesn't bite? So a person who says, I know that person, normally means not just you know, I've seen that person before. But what they mean is 
they know how they behave and they, they know how it ought to be handled. You with me? And knowledge like that, it comes through some prior relationship. Seeing them in action and handling them personally. This is what is known by, this is what is meant by when you know God. You've handled him personally, right? You just don't have the knowledge, but you actually realize that God is opening his heart to us. The living God of creation. Making friends with me and you. Crooked. Deep down. He should have flipped me off the timeline of humanity a long time ago. But he makes friends with us because he knows us. Because he wants to know us. An active and growing relationship. So, he's all that in a bag of chips. We can know him, amen? He's been there, done that. You can know him as good to the last drop. He's the know-it-all, and we can know that. Man, why didn't that transform our life? We can know those things. And the staggering thing to think about is that a pure, holy relationship of a perfect God wants to be had with flawed people and he wants to take us on his staff and use us for his good purposes that is what will transform your life church that's what it means and that's the goal of the series really the I Spy series the goal is very simple life change because how do you know if something's growing it's changing and if it's not changing chances are you're not growing. And if you're not growing, it's time to have a checkup. Right? If, you're, if your thinking starts to stinking, you need to check up from where? The neck up. Yes. Life change. It's not up for debate or assumption or open interpretation. It's nothing to play around with. God is on the throne and we are on the clock. God is on the throne and we are on the clock. This is no ordinary person we're dealing with here. We have a bumper sticker that we put on our cornhole board. That says this is no ordinary person that you're dealing with. Because Parker can play some cornhole. But I want him to know when he's playing me. This is no ordinary person you're dealing with son. But we're talking about the living king. This is no ordinary person we're dealing with. God is on the throne and we're on the clock. So how well do you know him? Remember this is where we're headed this morning. How well do you know him? So we've been working through different qualities, attributes, um, the nature of God. Remember, these aren't pieces of who he is. This is all the essence of who he is. He's good to the last drop. His goodness, his kindness, his love, his power, his knowledge. And so this morning, I want you to know that he's the hostess with the mostess. The grace of God. The hostess with the mostess. The grace of God. So if you would, go to the left if you're in Jeremiah. We're going to be in Samuel 9 for the rest of the message. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9. If you're there, say I'm there. We're not going to read it yet, so y'all back up one screen for me. So, um, so let me give you a little bit of background <clears throat> of Second Samuel chapter nine. Can you guys go back one screen? We're not going to read that quite yet. There it is. That'd be good. Um, thank y'all. Here's some background. It was while the first king of Israel, Saul, was still in power that the prophet Samuel anointed David as God's chosen king. Old David and Goliath thing. Okay, we have rivalry going on. So needless to say, this didn't make David popular with King Saul. In fact, it got so heated that Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions. He was really living life as a selected anointed king, but he was living life on the run. We find this at the end of 1 Samuel. And to, to uh, complicate matters worse, Saul's son, 
Jonathan was David's best friend. Uh-oh. And so Jonathan and David were so loyal to each other, they promised to always look after each other's family should something happen to either one of them. And then at the end, both Saul and Jonathan die in the Battle of Jezreel. We find that in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So in this chaotic time, the days that followed, David took the throne. All the descendants of Saul were on the run or, or killed because unfortunately this was typical when leadership changed. But in this case, there was one lone survivor from Saul's family. And it was a young boy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. He was the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. So this relationship shows us that it was King Saul's grandson. And he had slipped away seemingly unnoticed. And it's right here that we see what the grace of God looks like. It looks like this. Number one on your notes. The table was prepared. The table was prepared. The love of God. Through the grace of God. The table was prepared. 2 Samuel chapter 9 starting in verse 1. says this. David asked. Is there anyone remaining... From the family of Saul, I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David. King said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. And so the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there's still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. And he asked, the king asked him, well, where is he? Ziba answered, you'll find him in Lodibar, the house of Maker, son of Amiel. And so King David had him brought from the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Now, that might not look very interesting to you, but this is huge. Because the context brings this to life in ways that's unbelievable. So here's what's going on. When he was a child, Mephibosheth was dropped by, and we find this in, in, um, in, Samuel, in, in, in 2 Samuel 4. But when he was five years old, they were running in a battle and his nanny, my, my translation says nanny or nurse or caretaker. When he was five years old, they're running and he's dropped. And he's dropped and he's paralyzed in, in a way that he, uh, he's crippled. He can't use his feet. And by this time that we find in 2 Samuel 9, he's older. He's hiding out. He's hiding out because he fears that David would find him crippled and David would find him helpless and David would kill him because that's what is expected that's also what's deserved when you're an enemy of the king he was a slave to fear put yourself walk in those shoes he was a slave to fear there was no um, there was no sense of feeling like you belonged anywhere man you ever felt like that you've been in a place where you're like I am so out of my element right now I am completely exposed and vulnerable. What am I doing here? You know those feelings that that bring, brings. And so he stayed in the shadows. You, you ever been there? When you're uncomfortable, what do you do? You walk over and you're going to get something to drink and you stand in the corner. Or you look for someone that you do know that you can kind of buddy up with because you feel really awkward. You with me? He's hiding in the shadows. And we know this because of his location. Lodibar. Lodabar was a town somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho. Okay? Even the maps are inspired. This is important, right? So that's where Lodabar is. And the word Lodabar means no word or no thing. Which means probably the land around that area was useless for farming or pasture land. It means, it, it, the word translates, nothing town. Basically... 
is like Starsville. It's in the middle of nowhere, right? Church 213, where? It's, it's, yeah, you have to, like, know you're going to Church 213. You don't accidentally see the exit and get off. Oh, there's a big church. I see it from the interstate. No, this, uh, uh, first of all, Church Alive is worth a drive. Come on, somebody. But Lodabar really means in the middle of nowhere. So that's where he is. Now get the context. He's crippled. He's on the run. He's in the middle of nowhere. And so what we see is the king purposefully looking for this man, even though this man saw himself as crippled nobody in the middle of nowhere. Amen. Even though he was on the run from the king with a broken body and a confused identity, the king still wanted him. To God be the glory. What we see is David did something absolutely unbelievably life-changing. He extended grace by preparing a table for the guilty and for the helpless. Look at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? In another translation that I was working through, that my, my, my New American Standard, it used the word then. Then David. And I'm like, man, that word really popped out to me because the word then, that simple adverb, what it, what it implies is, uh, is an intentional act. Then. I got to the window and then I ordered. I pulled up to the gas pump and then a fight broke out. You know, it, it, it orders your steps, right? I came to church, then I, I went home, and then. And so what that's showing is the king, under no obligation, acted on behalf of this man on purpose. Then. The Bible says in Revelation 13, 3, that God set a table before us in Christ, the Lamb that was slain. It's intentional. Not because he has to, but because before the foundations of the earth was laid, planned by his grace. See, just because you might feel like you're stuck in Lodabar, that doesn't necessarily mean that's true. Just because you feel like you're, you're in the corner and you're hiding in the shadows, God is looking for you. Amen? He is interested in you. Ephesians 2 says, But God. Then, David, God is interested in you. He has prepared a table for our presence. He wants us to sit with him. Come stand by me. Isn't that cool? Doesn't that bring comfort to you when you walk into a place and somebody's like, Hey, man, come stand by me. Thank you. Okay, or you walk in and you scan the crowd and you see somebody and they're like, hey, come here. Which is why it's so critically important as a guest that someone, our church family, meets you at the front door and say, I'm really glad you're here. What's your name? You introduce yourself. It immediately breaks attention. Now, you're not new here. You've just never been here before. You're part of something. God has a table prepared for us in his presence we find this in Ephesians chapter 1 3 to 8 it says this Ephesians 1 says blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ in Christ that's the key for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in who what the beloved one in who him we have our redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of what his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding here's what that means that means at the foundations of the earth when they were laid, God's plan was always for us to be reconciled with him 
in Christ. It's in Christ alone. This is not saying that, that he has selected a few. That's not what this context is. It is the plan from the foundation of the earth that we would come to salvation in Christ and be in Christ. It's those that place their faith and trust in Christ that experiences all the riches of his glory in his wisdom. It's in Christ alone. So instead of chasing this crippled man down for punishment, which is really what he should have done, David. Oh, Ziba. He probably expected the king to say, okay, where is he now? Go kill him. Go execute your righteous judgment, King David. The lame beggar, the, the nobody with no hope, the helplessly lonely soul that had no merit or qualifications on his own in the middle of low debar. But the king, you with me here? The king offered him a place at his table on time and on purpose. That's grace. Amen, church? Grace is when God moves on our behalf and calls us out of our rebellion. Write this down, some of your notes. The grace of God is the good pleasure of God that draws him to grant or gift benefits that we don't deserve. That we don't deserve. Romans tells us there's none not righteous, not even one. Isaiah tells us that all of us have gone astray. Each have turned to his own way. But it's by grace that God imputes merit on our behalf, which means he gives us standing. He applies to us something that we cannot apply to ourselves. He gives us merit where none previously existed and declares no debt where there had been debt before. Woo! That's the gospel! That'll make you do a backflip and hurt your back. That's what that means. God does this because it is a self-existent principle of his divine nature to welcome the rebellious and to welcome the lost, to welcome the confused, and to bring favor on those that were once unwelcomed outcasts. We were enemies. Scripture tells us we were enemies of the king. But God. Romans 5.15 tells us Christ is the funnel through which the grace of God flows. Hey, be a funnel, not a drain. It's the funnel and it's Christ. Romans 5.15 says, but the gift is not like the trespass. It's talking about the, the gift that we got from Adam. Okay, our total depravity, our sin nature, what separates us naturally. This gift is not like that. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, many translate all, okay, all have fallen short of the glory of God. How much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. So salvation is offered to all men because of one man, because all sin, because of one man. I want you to think about, um, you know, a reservation. This helped me kind of understand this and apply it a couple weeks ago. When you make a reservation, what you're doing is you're having to make some type of arrangements because of limited access. Access. If you're with me, say I am. You know, so you have to make a reservation. But without a reservation, you're forced to live in a state of uncertainty. I'm going to starve to death. That phrase is thrown around a lot at my house, isn't it? Y'all don't look over there. Um, last summer, we, we, uh, we had a chance to go to this restaurant. We, we saw great reviews. We didn't realize there was a reservation needed. Okay, we just roll up in there, you know. I'm like, I got my visa and I got my appetite, let's eat. So we go in there and we walk in and, then, and I instantly realized, uh-oh, I've made a mistake because she looks at me and she looks at the list. And she looks at me and I'm like, I ain't on it. 
did you make a reservation? No, ma'am, I don't know. I had to make a reservation. She said, well, let me see what I can do. And in that moment, there's this tension. Why? Because my girls are starving to death. There's this sweet spot between hungry and hangry. Can I get a witness? Okay. It's my job to jump that hoop and to read between the lines. So when you think about a reservation, you know, you're, you're forced without one to live in this state of uncertainty. But with, with a reservation, you can simply walk to the front of the line and get, get ex, uh, uh, es, escorted to your table, granting... Um, Immediate access to the place that was once off limits, right? And the reason that you have that privilege is because the hostess has repositioned your current situation. Your name is on the list because you called the right number to ring the right phone to gain access to the only one who has the authority to give you the privilege of being offered a table. And the reservation that was arranged, prearranged, must be accepted when your name is called if you want your current position to change. It's intentionality here. And if you're a Christian, you have placed a reservation because of your new position under the headship of Christ. Romans 5, we just read it. You have called on Him. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be, what? Saved. You're rearranged. You've made your reservation You've heard the call of God on your life. You've stood there. The, book said, the, the Bible says that there's coming a time where there are the books of heaven will be opened and there will be a reckoning. They'll look at you. Man, I don't want to be in a state of uncertainty and fear in that moment. Amen? I want to know without a shower of a doubt. And if you're not a Christian, stop living life on the run and low debar. Stop living life on the run. Come to the king's table through Christ and find yourself some rest at night for your soul. God is the hostess with the what? The mostess. God is the hostess with the mostess. And this is a prayer that I pray often. Other than God never let go of me. I pray that so much. God don't let go of me. But here's a prayer to pray. I pray you never get over the moment. That God called you by grace to sit at his table. Y'all never get over that moment. When he found you in low debar. Crippled. Unable to come into his presence and he called you. And I also pray that like David. That we would extend that same grace. That God has shown us to the people that he has put in our care. Love thy neighbor. You know who the neighbor is in the context? It's anybody next to you. In any moment. Not just the person that lives next to you on your property. But I'm talking about right in this moment. James and Lori are neighbors. Not her husband, James. They're definitely neighbors. These two. You know why? Because of proximity. Proximity should lead to living life of purpose. So wherever you are, love thy neighbor as thyself. Why do you love? Because of the grace that was lavished on you. And if you're not changing... Odds are you're not growing out of that grace in your life. So I just threw out some questions right here. I always start with dads. Okay? Where the man goes, the family goes. The anchor. So husbands, dads, does the amount of grace God has given you compare to the grace you're giving to your wife and kids? Mm. Does it? You know, be, being the spiritual leader of the home, it's, y'all, it's so much more than, than making money and cutting the grass and sitting with your kids in church. It means to, to lead. To lead is to serve like Christ served the church and gave himself up for it out of a crippled humility. You've got to operate from that place of grace. It's what it means to lead. You can't lead until you follow. We're all just hungry beggars looking for the bread of life. A godly man sets the tone. A godly man pulls the weight, kills the snake. He'll even bake the cake. Godly man. Parents, the frequency 
that you demonstrate grace to your kids is a good indicator that you have not gotten over the own grace in your, in your life, the grace in your own life. How you handle your neighbor. You know what? Your neighbor is absolutely your children if they're right by your side. A couple of nights ago, Sadie spilled her water at the table. She instantly looks at me. It was an accident. So I look at her. She looks at me. She's scared. She starts fumbling, trying to make all these. But we don't punish her for accidents. And in that moment, I was able to extend grace. I said, let's, let's clean this up. What are we doing? What are you waiting on? We're getting wet here. You know, I smiled, and you could see the relief come off of her because grace that was extended. You want to break a tense situation, y'all? You know what weapon you use? Grace. Teens, y'all are stacked and packed over there. Y'all going to camp. Y'all going to have a great time. SPF 1000, wear it, okay? All right. You're not going down on my watch with sunburn. But teens, my question is, how often do you prepare a table for someone around you that doesn't deserve it? Right? Got a couple more weeks of school. Seize it, use it, prepare that table through grace. Mephibosheth received a gift from the king, and the only thing he could do was to offer his life in service. That, that was his only response. He said, here is your servant, right? Here's your servant. It was the only reasonable response from the grace he had received. And what an amazing, for us church family, what, what an amazing thing that would happen in this house if we lived a life of surrender at the feet of the Savior every day, right? At the feet of that table. What if we lived with our feet under the table? That would change us. That would change your home. Something else, too. Not only did, was the table prepared, but the talk was personal. This is the second thing. Man, we're way ahead this morning. I can keep on going. Yeah, the talk was personal. The talk was personal. Um, look, at, look at verse 7. We're going to pick up and move through it. Verse 7, well, let's go back to verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell face down and paid homage, respect. And David said, Mephibosheth, I am, your, I am your servant who called his name. And his response was, I am your servant. He couldn't get over the fact that David had called his name. Verse 7, David said, don't be afraid. David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields. And you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you would take interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson, all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, your servants, are to work the ground for him. You are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have to eat. You know what he's telling Ziba? This guy can do nothing because he's crippled, so I'm going to provide for him. I'm going to make provisions for him. I'm going to dig wells. I'm going to give you wells you didn't dig, the Old Testament says. I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you buttermilk biscuits made from the udders of cows that you didn't even milk. That is what the grace of God does for us. Makes provisions. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. To always to eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He's a busy guy. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my... Uh, do, uh, will do all my Lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Man, can you picture it? 
You know, you've got Solomon. He just rolls out of the library, okay, pushes his glasses up. You know, he's been doing some studying because he knows stuff. He's wise, okay. You've got um, Tamar, you know, she's beautiful. She, she has her, her, her um, she's a queen, you know, she's the, the princess, and she rolls to the table. You have Absalom, you know, he's there too, and everybody's pulling up to the table, and then you hear this clack, click, clack, and you look, and here comes dragging himself to the table, Mephibosheth, like he's one of the king's sons. Whew. Sits down and makes himself available right there. The talk was personal. I want you to know this. The unmerited grace of the king had changed Mephibosheth's future forever because he had access to something that was now very personal. He now had a place at the king's table, which meant he was family. He had inheritance. He had security. Just like a son. And you know what it did? It overwhelmed him. It overwhelmed him because he remembered what it was like dragging himself in Lodabar in the shadows. He knew what it was like. There, you know, he also knew there was no precedent for like this. This is not the way you handle your government. This was brand new. This was extravagant grace. This was amazing grace. The reason that it's eternally amazing is because it's eternally undeserved. This was unlike anything that was going on. It broke all the rules and it changed the circumstances because of sheer grace. That's what grace does. It will change the circumstance. It will make people go, wow, that's different. So go let your light shine among men so they may see your good works in, Father, in heaven and glorify your Father. Matthew, you know what that looks like? How do you let your light shine? Through the grace of God. That's what makes people go, whoa, you're changing. There's something different about you. Sweetheart, I don't know what's gotten into you, but you're different the last two weeks. I don't know what happened to you teenage son, teenage girl, but you're different. You know how they're experiencing the change is because of grace, right? And there's a word that jumps out more than once in these verses, and it's this word. It's the word always. Always. And I don't want you to overlook it because it's huge of importance. Once the grace, if you with me, say I am. Once the grace from David was extended to Mephibosheth. Old Sethi never left the table. Never left. Because it was so good. The Bible tells us that Ziba had to be summoned. Catch this. Ziba had to be summoned for, which means he wasn't local. He wasn't in the house. He lived somewhere else. He didn't live in Jerusalem in the king's house. However, that was not the case for Mephibosheth. Look at verse 12. It said, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. It doesn't say that they lived there. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Why? Because he had always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. He never left the king's table. He was local. He had completely repositioned his eternity at the king's table because he never forgot where he came from. Right? You know, God never... Uh, I saw a quote last week that said something like, um, God never uses anything that comes to him already put together. Rearranges some things. He never left the table again because of the one who had invited him to sit. Whew. Let's just say, for example, that that I'm in a restaurant this week and um, and I see Chipper Jones eating dinner. Uh, first of all, I had to apologize because I called him washed up. He's not washed up. Okay, I I said that last week. I'm sorry, Chipper. If you're if you're if you're watching, you're not washed up. You're retired. Okay, you don't hurt me. 
If I see him in a restaurant, I'm not going to go over there and I'm not going to sit down in his booth and strike up a conversation because I have no relationship with him. And I know that he has not offered me a place at his table. And because of that, security would be called if I go sit down next to him. Right? But if he was being kind, because he's not washed up, he's retired. If he was being kind and he invited me to sit with him at dinner, the table that he had prepared for me would be a gift of grace. You with me? And because of the grace, I would have a personal connection that now provided me with the right to stay at that table as long as he desired for me to sit there. I'm not going anywhere because he invited me to sit with him. My place at the table, I want you to get this, the place at the table that I once had no business being at would affect my behavior. It changed me. My actions and my motives and my desires would be different. I'd be on my best behavior. I wouldn't embarrass you. I wouldn't embarrass my family. I'd keep my elbows off the table. I'd be careful not to spill anything. Y'all with me, teenagers? Y'all with me? I'd be very careful not to answer calls or send any texts. That's disrespectful at the table. I'd not use what was on the table selfishly, like Cookie Monster. You know, I wouldn't do that. I would be, I would not be demanding to the server. That would be disrespectful. I'd give my full attention to the situation. Me and Chipper, we're just talking. I'm locked in. I'm not looking around. I'm not watching the Braves rerun on the, on the table. You know, I'm not, I'm not messing with my napkin. What am I doing? I'm locked in to Chipper Jones because he's retired. He's not washed up. Okay. I'm locked in to Chipper Jones. I wouldn't do anything. I want you to get this. This is serious. I wouldn't do anything that would make it appear that I was ungrateful. Why? Because grace has holding power and grace has changing power when it's personal. And to be ungrateful at the table is evidence to the host that they're really not important. Disrespect. To be ungrateful at the table is evidence that the host really isn't that important to you. Which was why, you know, which is why if we have an opportunity to take a date, you know, grocery shopping. If we have a chance to, to go, you know, to go out, we, we make it a point to put our phones away. But if you, uh, you know, if you're observant when you're eating dinner, sometimes you notice other couples and other people. We saw a couple a while back, both watching their phones independently at the table together. Watching TV, not even the same screen. I'm like, man, that's disrespectful to the moment, right? I want to soak in this moment. I want to stare and I want to think and I want to contemplate and I want to remember. I want, to, I want, this, I want this moment to stay. And what a, you know, the grace of God, it should change us at the table. It should keep us there. It should hold us. I thought about this. You know, when a person truly understands that oxygen is a gift, you're not going to abuse your lungs. If you, if you understand and, and you comprehend that good health is a gift, you will eat responsibly. If a man understands that a good wife is a precious, priceless gift, as God's word says, he'll lay down his needs to hers and vice versa. It all comes down to perspective of the gift. And when a Christian understands that grace is a gift of God, oh man, they're going to make the choice to say no to wrong and yes to right. To God be the glory. And here's the danger. The danger is, though, if we lose sight of grace, we start looking for a better place to sit. Man, it would be foolish for me to sit at the table with Chipper Jones and go, man, I wish I was sitting over there with that person who I don't even know. Oh, their bread looks good. I'm a, you, know, you know, I'm not going to admire what's on my left and right because of who I'm sitting at the table with. 
We are sitting at the table with the risen king. If the grass is greener on the other side, stop looking over there. That's on your notes right there. Stop looking over there. Everything you have is found in the new headship of Christ. Your soul is redeemed. Look at verse 13. I'm closing out. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. Man, that's a beautiful line in God's word. His feet had been injured. What that tells me is he didn't take that grace for granted, did he? He knew exactly what was going on. He didn't abuse it. He didn't behave as ungrateful in an unworthy manner. The text says he never left the king's table because he had never forgot what the king had done for him. And so my prayer is that you would understand the grace of God this morning the first time if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ that you would do that this chair, this is where we're headed this chair is an invitation to come sit at the king's table but my other prayer is this if you've forgotten what the grace of God has done for you that you would come back to that and that would change you, it would change your heart, it would change the way you treat the people that God has called you to be their neighbors starting in our own home because if you're not changing, chances are you're not growing. Last thing, this is on your notes. If one is quick to leave the table of grace, it may be time to evaluate what they believe about the offer. Maybe time to evaluate what you believe about the offer. And so in just a few minutes, um, we're going to have a time of response. We're going to have a time for you to, uh, to evaluate the offer. The offer is on the table. It is the hand of God being extended to you. What we deserve is the wrath of God. But because of the wrath of God, think about it like this. The mercy of God is holding back that wrath. Yes, he's holding it back and he's extending his hand in grace. But the Bible is clear. There will come a day where he will remove that hand of love and he will remove that hand of grace and we are held accountable for the way that we've lived our lives and it's only being under Christ through the message of the cross that we can have a stay of execution for all of eternity and if that if that finds its place daily in your heart man you'll never leave the table and the people around you will never be the same